Let's see if we can uh, do a few things today. Um, we've been talking through kind of the, the, the shape of the journey, I suppose. We can put it that way. The way it is that we go through this way of Jesus, how it's experienced, you know, the tools that we need and how we go about it. And I wanted to kind of continue that theme into the subject of service this morning because that's just an incredibly important piece. But as usual, I want to take a look at it from a little bit different point of view. Last uh, Tuesday, I was having one of those days. You know the days I'm talking about? Just tons of distraction, tons of things going on, technical problems, stuff happening. The phone kept ringing. It's funny how the phone just kind of goes up and down, and, and some days it's ringing. And every time I would just start to get on a roll, start to concentrate on something I was doing, here goes the phone again. And, uh, and so, you know, but I'm trying to pick it up. I'm trying to be present and all that kind of stuff. So late in the afternoon, um, I'm, like I said, just starting to get some things done. Phone goes off. I take a look. It's a number that I don't recognize. And I don't know about you, but a lot of those numbers are telemarketers, right? How did they get to our cell phone? How did that happen? Wasn't there supposed to be a list? I was on the list. But here's this number. I'm thinking, okay, it's probably a telemarketer. I'm going to have to deal with it. I just want to stick with what I'm doing. Now I should answer the phone and just see what's going on. So I answer the phone, and there's a, there's a beat. I say, hi, Dave. Hi, it's Dave. And uh, there's a couple of beats there of silence, and I'm thinking, okay, it's one of those robocalls. And then he, here comes this male voice, young male voice, and he says, is this the church? And I said, yes, it is. And he says, oh, I've been calling church after church, and no one's answering the phone. You're the first one to answer the phone. And I said, well, great. And I said, well, what can I do to help you? And he said, well, I'm, my name is Israel, and I have my friend here named Josh. And we're Marines, and we're being deployed tomorrow, and we're just looking for someone to pray with. <laughs> wow, huh? They had gone to Saddleback a few times, he said, and so they knew that. So they were driving around this area. They came up from Pendleton. They were driving around, and uh, no one was there. They called, and they just started going down the Internet list, right? Just calling, 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 and I picked up the phone that close to not picking it up, but I picked up the phone. And uh, he started telling me that, yes, they, they're being deployed tomorrow and they needed someone to pray with. I don't know about you, but sometimes in a conversation or something you're doing, there's just this moment that kicks in. And it's like all of the resistance, all of the irritation, all of the annoyance, all of the stress, everything that I had been carrying that day just exited. It's like those movies where someone shoots out a, an aquarium and in two seconds all the water and the fish are flopping on the floor. It was kind of like that. Just everything went out of me. And it's just like, i got to be there. Of course i got to be there. I said, well, well uh, I said, where are you? I said, well, they said, we're in San Clemente. I said, do you have our address? He goes, yeah. I said, what's your ETA? He says, just a second. Five minutes. <laughs> I said, well, I need 15. Give me 15, and I'll meet you there. He says, you sure? I don't want to take it. No, no, this is where I need to be. Come on. I drive in here, and they're already waiting up at front. And I, I, I you Israel? Yeah. Okay, come on back. And they're in this little little uh, sports convertible thing. And uh, as they're getting out, you know, we, we shake hands, and we introduce ourselves all over again. And I said, uh, you know, where do you, do you guys know where you're going? And he says, no, we don't really know. I said, you can neither confirm nor deny, right? And he says, no, they really haven't told us. We know we're going to Asia, and we know that um, we're going to end up on, off the coast of Yemen. He said, we're, we're first responders, so we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And uh, we've only been in the Corps a year and a half. 
This is our first deployment, eight months, and then we'll be coming back. And he said, just, just really felt like we needed to pray with someone. So I brought him in, and we went back into the conference room back there and sat down and just started talking, and I was asking him questions. And, and uh, they were telling me, you know, Barrick's life is really hard when you're in, at the bottom of the totem pole. He said, you ever heard of hazing? I go, yeah. And he said, he said, sorry about the shaved head, but that's one of the things they did to us. You know, and he said, but after the deployment, it will be better. And... I was talking to both of them about their personal lives and what was going on, and and Josh was uh, kind of the more emotional of the two. You know, he was tearing up, and he said the love of his life was back home in Illinois, and uh, he just felt so bad about leaving her, and and you know this and that, and and he was worried about, of course, about the deployment and what was going to happen afterwards. And Israel was had a wife in Michigan, and uh, he said he was really hoping that after the deployment she would be able to move out and he could finish his tour. She could finish the tour with him, you know, living on base at Pendleton. And uh, you know, they they weren't really worried about uh, going into harm's way, you know, as first responders, but. You know, there's all this pent-up anxiety. They, I asked them about their, their uh, spiritual life, you know. What did they have? And they said the chaplains there weren't really specific to any one faith. They're kind of generic, you know, and they have to practice all faiths. And so going to the chaplain and asking them specific questions that they wanted to ask or just be able to talk about their faith was something that was really kind of eluding them. And so there was this hunger to talk to somebody else and to just connect. They said, well, yeah, we wanted to pray with someone who knew what they were doing. <laughs> I love that. You know, as if. But... Uh, at any rate, you know, I, I said, is there something that you do every day? Do you have some sort of, of spiritual routine, devotionals that you do? And they said, well, I really want to start that, and, uh, and, and I really want to get, get more into it, and I want to take some good books. And, and they talked about reading the Bible, and I asked them if they knew about the message translation, and uh, they said no. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, afterwards, you know, I'll, I'll give you two copies that you can take. So Scott just noticed there's two less copies on the bookshelf. <laughs> I'm telling you now. But uh, anyway, then we sat down. Uh, we were sitting down the whole time, but you know, I just opened us up in prayer. And I, I just uh, kind, of, kind of tried to set the stage and calm them down. And then each one of them prayed in turn. And they were praying for each other. And they were using names that I didn't recognize. And afterwards, they explained to me, we always call each other by our last names in the Corps. And so that's what they were doing. And, and so it was just all these little bits and pieces of what their life looked like and what they were experiencing and what they were going into. And they each prayed, and, and it was just so heartfelt. They each prayed prayers of gratitude for the blessings that they had that they didn't deserve. And I just thought that was interesting that they both felt that way. And I prayed for them. I prayed for them going into harm's way. I prayed if they had to harm somebody else that they did in such a way that their humanity, their sense of, of connection and brotherhood and spirit remained. And um, we just prayed. And at the end of it, you know, got up and gave them their, their Bibles, their books, and we said we'd try to stay in touch. Or at least when they got back, they said they were looking for a church, and when they got back to base, that they really wanted to consider, you know, us here. So hopefully we'll see them again. But there's two guys that you can... Enter into your prayers, Israel and Josh, who are somewhere, someplace overseas, probably in Asia by now. But it was this clarifying moment for me, once again. It's especially conflicting sometimes, or confusing sometimes, to be working in 
the clergy to be working as a minister because so much of the work that we do is still just administrative. It's just just day-to-day nuts and bolts kind of stuff. And yet all of that is supposed to be contributing to this spiritual overlay, to this spiritual sense and, and, and depth of connection. And sometimes that gets lost. And to have a call like this that, that gave me that, that clear moment, of course, it wasn't even that I felt I had to drop everything. Everything was dropped. Everything was just gone. There, there was nothing in me that wanted to be anywhere else except with those two men. And this is so important for us to understand, you know, to be so present to these moments of, of connection, you know, to just remember why we're really here. There was a video that somebody sent me, just a little video log thing. And it was a coach, and he was talking about going to a restaurant with his wife and sitting and having lunch. And a, an older woman came and sat down at a large table that was set for more people. So he figured, you know, she was there waiting for somebody. And then sure enough, a few minutes later, here came a whole family, what he assumed was her daughter, and she was, you know, very well quaffed and dressed and just beautiful and the kids and the grandkids or whatever was going on and they all sat down and they're having their lunch and he said something told me he said there was a voice in my head that said you need to go to her and tell her how beautiful she looks you know do you ever get those kind of feelings? And, you know, you, you put them somewhere down in your shirt pocket or in your purse, I guess, and, and he's finishing dinner, but it, it persisted. And when they got up to leave, they were still there. And so his wife went on ahead of him, and he walked over, and he said he got down to her eye level, and he said, I just want to tell you how lovely you look today. And he said that she just stopped, and she looked right into his eyes, and she said, I know you. And he says, no, I'm pretty sure you don't. He says, no, I know your spirit. My husband died a year ago, and that is something that he exactly would have said. And then there were no more words. You know, All they could do was hug, and he left. And he talked about the fact that there, he called them shoulder taps. He said, sometimes you get this tap on the shoulder that just alerts you to something that's going on around you that maybe you weren't paying attention to. That is something you're supposed to lean into. It's, it's a signal from, from God. It's a signal from this, this connection that we have with Spirit that most of the time we're unaware of that can lead us into action if we're paying attention just enough that we can hear that urge, we can hear that voice, we can feel that tap, whatever it is that can move us into action. Now, I didn't hear a voice. And I'm not even sure he did. That's the way he expressed it. And it was an audible voice. It felt like that to him. But I just knew. I just knew that that was the moment. Now, maybe for me it was a little less risky. I wasn't walking up to someone cold in a restaurant, you know, making a fool of myself if she didn't appreciate the gesture. But still, even though I was being invited, it's the same type of moment of clarity that we need to lean into. Jesus made a big deal about service, didn't he? He said, I didn't come to serve. I'm sorry. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And he made a big deal about service in terms of the way that he lived his life. And so we as a church, we've made a big deal about service as well. 
We talk about servant leadership all the time, and it's become this big formal thing. We've got whole organizations that are wrapped around servant leadership, and we go to the far reaches of the earth to try to find ways that we can serve, and we can spread the gospel and do all the things that we do. And we have these rules and these forms and this structure all about service, all about the way that we're trying to go. And we look for ways of being of service. Especially if you're in the program, service is one of the hallmarks, and so you're looking for ways of being of service. And for some of us, service has become a profession, right? And so now it's a whole different level of structure and a whole different level of organization. And all of that's good, obviously. There's a lot of people being helped. But I'm wondering if it was really Jesus' conception of service when he talked about being of service, when he talked about being here to serve each other. Maybe we missed the boat a little bit. Maybe we've taken it a bridge too far. Maybe we need to come back and see if we can glean something from Jesus' words and from the stories about him and find out how service maybe could be fit into our lives in a different way. There's a story in the Gospel of John, always been kind of puzzling to me. Um, Jesus' reactions and, and decisions in this story just don't seem to track for me. They seem out of character. And so I wanted to see what you think about this. Let's take a look at John chapter 11. And starting right at verse 1. And let's see if we can break this down a little bit and get a little closer. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after that, this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now to give you a little backstory, Jesus was in Judea. He was in Jerusalem. And he had pushed the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the Sadducees, the, the temple leadership as far as they could be pushed. And they were plotting to kill him. He actually had to get out of town. And he went out Transjordan. He crossed the Jordan River and was ministering on the other side of the Jordan because it was just too hot in Jerusalem. And so when he says this, let's go to Judea again, the, the, the uh, seven or ten chapter, or verses that I'm skipping here are all about the debate that ensues here between him and his disciples. They're saying, are you crazy? We can't go back to Judea. And of course, Jesus is adamant. We're going back. And so Thomas finally says, well, we might as well go and die with him because that was the attitude that they had. He's going right back into harm's way, going right back into the jaws of the lion. But here's this strange reaction. He gets an urgent call. This man whom you love, one of Jesus' best friends apparently, is gravely ill. Didn't he get the shoulder tap? Is Jesus disconnected at this point? You know. Now usually what we say the reason that he stayed was because Jesus knew that he was going to raise him. And not only that, it goes a step further. Because the text is suggesting that he actually waited on purpose and let him die in order to be able to raise him. 
and make this statement about the glory of God and make this statement about his own person and the power that he had in the Father as he and the Father were one. And that's a difficult way to look at the Scripture, for me at least. It seems cold, it seems kind of manipulative, and it just, again, seems so out of character for Jesus. You know, I didn't... Uh, everything about God's glory, the honor, everything that was going there, whatever happens, the Jews believed was God-ordained. This is their idiomatic way of speaking. And so everything that happens, happens because God ordained it for no other reason. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. So, in a way, Jesus is reiterating this through the text. And the, and the Jews who were listening to him and understood this way of speaking would have understood that. In a way, he's comforting them. He said, everything is going to happen the way God ordains it. But even that aside, assuming that Jesus knew everything that he was going to do, is there a larger point? Is there another way that we can look at his decision-making process here? We need to read a little bit more. So starting again at verse 17. So when Jesus came, this is to Bethany, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming to meet them, coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now this is the same Martha of the Martha and Mary story, who was irritated at her sister because she was doing all the work, preparing the meal. Remember the story? And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, just soaking it all in. And Lord, tell my sister to get to work. See, Martha's the heady one. Martha's the intellectual one. Martha is the one who is practical. She's a thinker. She's kind of legally minded in all her ways, right? Jesus meets her right where she is. Do you see what he's doing here? When he gets to Bethany and she's the first one who greets him, he knows her. He knows what she's thinking. Even what she says, you had to have been here, Lord. He starts teaching her. He starts starting with her intellect. He starts working through the steps to get her to a place of comfort. He comforts her with the personality that she has. He comforts her with the way or the, uh, the worldview and the view of the world that she has. He is present to her, he sees her, and he deals with her appropriately. But here comes Mary, right? At verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him, skipping to verse 32. When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. 
When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The two sisters, the two women, come to Jesus and they say the exact same thing. But the difference in tone, the difference in delivery, the difference in personality, Jesus' reaction to them is completely different. Whereas with Martha, it's a almost a theological conversation that brings her to a place of understanding and comfort. Mary is the intuitive. Mary is the emotive one. Mary is the one who connects deeply. She's the empath. And Jesus knows this about her. And he probably has a soft spot for her because of this. But his reaction to her is to weep with her, to grieve with her, to be completely connected with her because that's what she needed. To try to lead her through some sort of rational discussion at that point would have been completely tone deaf. And Jesus, of course, understands this. He knows this. He weeps with her. Do you have a favorite movie that you watch over and over again? Over and over again. A go-to movie that you go to? Marion likes The Devil Wears Prada. That's her go-to movie. Every time it comes on, she wants to watch it. You know, mine is The Kingdom of Heaven. I can watch that one over and over again. So you know the movie. You got all got the movie in your mind, you know, and you can watch it over and over again. Do you find yourself laughing and crying at the same spots over and over again? Why is that? How is that happening? I mean, good Lord, you know how it's going to come out. You could practically recite the dialogue along with them, you know, but you still end up laughing and crying at those particular frames in the movie. See, what we've done with Jesus is something that's beautiful psychologically. We've said, okay, Jesus knew everything. He's omniscient. He has all of this this knowledge and foreknowledge. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he is free. It's some kind of an unfair advantage to choose something different, to be able to stay here instead of go there because he knows these things. It's beautiful and it's bulletproof because what it does is it puts Jesus in a non-human category. Something so completely other than us as human beings that it absolves us from the responsibility of being present and making our own choices. To be present to the people that are around us. Jesus knew something that I don't know, can never know. And yet Jesus is telling us, these things you see me do, you can do if you follow me. So whatever Jesus knew about what was coming and what he was going to do and the purpose of those things, he was still living his life intimately, frame by frame, moment by moment, face by face, person by person, group by group, completely present. When he was Transjordan and he was ministering to the people there and the word comes to him that his friend is dying, The most important person in Jesus' life at that moment was the one who was right in front of him. Not even his good friend who was dying. It's this person right here. And I believe the way to read Jesus' reactions through this story is to see it that way. He is absolutely present, ministering and serving the person that he is with, the one who is right in front of them. Everything that he has 
everything that he has to give is focused right there, right then. And so he stays where he is and continues to minister until the ministering is done. And then it's time to go back to Judea. doesn't matter if it's too hot. doesn't matter if it's risky or he's going into harm's way. His friend is calling. And the first person he meets is Mary. And he's completely present to her. And he turns into rabbi. He turns into teacher. He does what he does in order to comfort her and to bring her down off the ledge. And then he meets Mary. And even though he knows his next step is to go to the tomb and call Lazarus forth, he is fully involved in her grief and grieves with her, weeps with her. Try to imagine living life like this. Try to imagine being so completely immersed in each moment that the person you're with is the most important person in the world. Sometimes I ask this question, who's the most important person in, in your life right now? And of course, it's a trick question. People will say, oh, my wife, my son, my daughter. What? Who's the most important person in your life right now? If you can't say the person sitting next to you, if you can't say me or whomever you're with, you're missing the point of Jesus' life. You're missing the point of this whole story, I believe. How often do we pine for the one who is not present at the expense of the ones who are? Don't we do that? Jesus is showing us something completely different here. He's showing us that if we allow ourselves to immerse in the story frame by frame right now, we can let go of all of that other stuff that is constantly distracting us and pulling us out. We can just be. Just like when you watch that movie. You can suspend your disbelief and you can just be with those characters and you can laugh at the same place and cry at the same place because you're right there. I believe, and I read between the lines of these stories in the New Testament, that Jesus lived his whole life like this. He had seen the Father, and the news was so good that he knew that the story was going to come out well. And even though there were going to be difficult times, and even though he was going to grieve deeply with the people around him, he knew how it was going to come out in the end. And he could be completely present. He didn't have to guard himself. He didn't have to make contingencies. He didn't have to worry about the future or regret the past. He could be right here, so involved in every single thing that he did. For Jesus, it's all about the person in his path. And here's the key, I think, in terms of service. He didn't have to go looking for service. He didn't have to organize it. He didn't have to plan for it. He didn't have to have contingency plans. All he had to do was show up where he was, completely present, and all these opportunities would present themselves. This is the way that we can do service. If we have community in our life, community that we're actually showing up to, that presents a structure for us, and if we're disciplined to that structure and we keep showing up, we can't help but be presented with opportunities for service. And now the question is, are we a people who are ready to be moved into action? 
by the need that is presented at the moment that it's presented. To kind of paraphrase Brother Lawrence here, who said, you know, we think we've got to invent all these means at coming at God. You know, we think we have to invent all these means at coming at service, but it's not so. All we have to do is do what we normally do all day long. But with the practice of the presence of God, every moment becomes sacred. Every moment becomes this opportunity to connect. And if our service is just a smile, if our service is just the acknowledgement of someone else's existence, or if it's picking up the phone when you'd rather not, if it's walking to a table and risk making a fool of yourself, these are all the things that are opportunities for us to be a deep human service. The shoulder taps guy had no idea what what he said would mean to that woman who lost her husband a year ago and how that might have changed the course of her recovery, of her grief, of the way that she deals with her family. We don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes. If we just answer the call, things are going to happen in ways that we don't understand. Now, how do we do this? How do we get to the point that we're this present, this able to see and feel the shoulder taps and the, and the, the voice that is egging us on and motivating us to go in a different direction? How are we going to know the decision and what decision to make when there's all these competing and pulling forces and influence constantly through our lives? I really think that our service becomes real the moment we forget about doing service. As soon or as long as it's service to us, a duty that we're supposed to perform, something that we that Christ did and so we're supposed to do it, it's not that the good that we do isn't real. But as Jesus would say, I guess you have your reward in full. There, there's, there's nothing deeper. And we don't necessarily get the sense of connection, the sense of, of being in the right place at the right time. There's a moment when all of our agenda goes out the window. Even our likes and our dislikes become irrelevant. Our concerns and our worries collapse into knowing simply that there's no place else you'd rather be. Well, wait a minute. Isn't service supposed to be about sacrifice? I mean, if there's no sacrifice, is it really service? Isn't it be some sort of imposition? Aren't we supposed to feel like we're being restricted? That's how we know we're serving, right? You know? I mean, if, if it feels like pleasure, if it feels like this is the only place I'd rather be, then it can't be service. That's just selfish, right? I mean, we think this way, don't we? Don't we think the service is supposed to somehow be sacrificial, that we're supposed to be feeling like we're losing something in the process, and we've got it all back to front? There's something else at work here. I wanted to read to you, and it's in your, in your handouts, just a, a little paragraph from Barbara Brown Taylor. And she writes this, Like every believer I know, my search for real life has led me through at least three distinct seasons of faith. Not once or twice, but over and over again. Jesus called them finding life, losing life, and finding life again. With the paradoxical promise that finders will be losers, while those who lose their lives for his sake will wind up finding them again. In Greek, the word is psyche for life, meaning not only life, but also the conscious self, the personality, the soul. You do not have to die in order to discover the truth of this teaching. 
In other words, you only need to lose track of who you are or who you thought you were supposed to be so that you end up lying flat on the dirt floor basement of your heart. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. When we get ourselves so completely out of the way, that's all that's left in the world are Mary's tears that are flowing right in front of you. We'll know exactly what to do, won't we? If there's no more agenda, if there's no more thinking about contingencies, wondering, self-consciousness, what-ifs, we're just completely present to those tears, we'll know what to do. It's going to be obvious to our hearts. And that will finally silence all those voices in our head. There'll be no more debate. Whether it's two young Marines on a phone call you didn't want to take, if it's a young man in your office, if it's a woman at the next table, a person in your home, a grocery store, whether it's an urgent need that seems to be presented or not, a crisis or not, you may or may not hear the voice or feel the shoulder tap on your, on your body in some way. But if you're really present, if you're really there, then your next move will be perfect. I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Think about the people in your life who made the perfect move at a perfect time for you has to be people in your life like that. I remember at one really, really difficult time in my life, I looked for pastors or priests or anybody who could help me, and I found out about the American Catholic Church. And uh, I found a church in, I think it was Fullerton or someplace, and I called him up and I got an appointment with the priest, and I still remember his name to this day, Father Erskine. I spent probably exactly an hour and a half to two hours with the man, but I still remember his name 30 years later because I went there and I just threw up all over his desk, figuratively speaking. All this stuff, I was just all these things, all these things that were bubbling up, and I'm probably speed talking a mile a minute, and I'm just sitting back there, and finally he says, How much time you got? <laughs> I got time. You want to take a ride? Yeah. And he drove me over, or I drove, and he rode over to Paulus Press Bookstore, a Catholic bookstore in, uh, in uh, Costa Mesa, and he just started pointing out titles. And every title he pointed out, I picked up and I bought, and I walked out with, in the early 90s, over $100 worth of books. That was a lot of books back then, you know? And it introduced me to Thomas Merton and Henry Nowen and Brennan Manning and Aquinas and all these heroes of faith, all these thinkers that I had never been exposed to before. And that two hours with Father Erskine helped change the course of my life. I didn't go to his church. I didn't pay him anything. I had never tithed to his church. He never saw me again. I tried to write him a thank you letter. I did write him a thank you letter. I never heard back. But he felt the shoulder tap. He heard the voice when he saw this earnest but really screwed up young man in front of him. He made the perfect move, the absolute perfect move. 
And maybe he discerned from me that I was a reader. Maybe he knew that books were the thing that was going to... It doesn't really matter. He knew what to do. We will know what to do if we simply put ourselves in place. Keep putting ourselves in place. Keep showing up. Be completely aware of who we're with. And then just allow ourselves to act. This is service. It's not formal. It's not even structured. But the structure from your community will give you all the opportunity. And when you do this, it's fun. (laughs) It is the most beautiful and pleasurable thing. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. He said, I and the Father are one. I don't do this out of duty. I don't do this because it's law. I don't do this out of obligation. Everything in me that gives me any pleasure at all only does so is because this is what the Father takes pleasure in as well. When we take pleasure in the same thing the Father takes pleasure in, everything that we do will be on the Father's initiative, just as Jesus said. And everything we do will be a prayer, just as Jesus said. And everything we do will be perfect service, even though... It's just having fun in the only place you would ever want to be at that moment. Let's pray. Father, I keep coming back to the brilliance of your scripture, the brilliance of your word. What it says, what it doesn't say, It's so amazing. You have given us the ability to see into your heart through these words on paper. Thank you for leaving that record for us, that trail of breadcrumbs back to you. Help us to read them as you intended them to be read. Help us to see the relevance to our lives right here and right now how they can mold us, motivate us, change us in ways that will give us the experience of this good news that you've given us. Father, I want to know you better. We all want to know you better. We want to be transformed into people who take pleasure in the same things that you do, that your will and our will is exactly one, the same will. Help us to be bold enough to act on the things that still seem sketchy, that still seem risky. But just show up and see what happens. And if we get hurt, if we're made a fool of because of the things we do, help us to get right back up on the horse and do it again and again and again and find you in the path, always in the path, always in the person who's in front of us, Thank you, Father, for loving us as much as you do. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, everyone. Let's all stand.